Welcome to the Life on Repeat podcast with me, Laura Valancourt, licensed mental health counselor, geriatric mental health specialist, and dementia coach. I'm so happy that you found us. Hey, folks, I am really pleased to have our guest on today. Peg Sandine is joining us. And Peg is a social worker with over 25 years of experience in end of life care, has a really amazing personal story as well as to what brought them into this work. And Peg is also the CEO of Death with Dignity. So we're going to be learning and a lot about end of life care, what the policies and rules are, especially related to dementia, which some of us are just learning the limitations to death with dignity and end-of-life care with folks who have a type of dementia. This is just going to be a great conversation, I know. So welcome, Peg. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, hi, Laura, and thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be in conversation about this very important topic with you this morning. I agree. You know, we were just kind of touching on the fact that that we're all moving in the direction of death, right? That's the only guarantee <laughs> to life is death. And so it's always amazing to me how this topic isn't discussed more. It's still taboo. It, it has been throughout time and it is continuing to be. So I imagine you meet a lot of people that are maybe, I'm guessing, a little nervous to talk about it or uh, not sure even what to ask or how to open this conversation? You know, I have a two different stories that I'm thinking about when you open up with this. And one is a funny story. So I'll go with that first. And then I'll go a different, more serious direction. But, you know, I'm the daughter of a hospice nurse. And so in my life, um, when I was growing up around the kitchen table, my mom would talk about dying. Dying was very normalized in my family. And I, I mean, I say this, this is somewhat a joke and not a joke is that when I went to college, I sort of figured out that other people didn't talk about dying around the dinner table. Like I did, like, I was like really different in that one little sense. I was so fun at parties, right? I kind of had to figure out like, this is not the topic of conversation in a college party, but it really, I mean, I think that it, it goes to what you're saying is it's like, we're all going to die. We all have loved ones who are going to die. And it, it is one of the only enduring things that we will all experience. And yet we have this taboo and we don't talk about it, you know? And I I think that that is one of the biggest challenges that I face as a social worker in end-of-life care is people wait until the time when they're dying to actually begin the conversation. And that's a really hard time to have the conversation. It's much easier to have the conversation when someone is alive and well, and, and there's not so much pressure to make decisions right at that point. Yeah. I've been seeing too, and I don't know if you have as well, but it seems with the baby boomer population, you know, the, the big mass of change makers that were born on the planet, you know, during this certain time that they, and I know obviously I'm making a generalization here, but it, it seems like they're demanding a different way that they, they're the ones that are asking these questions. They're the ones that are saying, Hey, you know, I don't want to face death in a a traditional way that my parents did or my grandparents did. And I'm seeing these questions being asked more and more, whether it's 
a spouse, somebody that's caring for a loved one, or whether it's adult children caring for their parents and watching this process and learning from that and recognizing that they want it to be different for themselves and, and their loved ones. And so I'm wondering, I would love to hear, I would love to share with our listeners just kind of what brought you into this work. I, it sounds like you have a history with your mom that was unique. It's so interesting what brings us into what we do, but I'd love to hear more specifically what brought you into working with Death with Dignity, and then we can talk a little more about that too. So I think that many people who I meet who are in the Death with Dignity movement come to this movement because of a personal experience. And I've been in this job for 17 years now. So I've been doing this for a really long time and hear so many stories. But my personal story is that when I was very young, I was 25, 26, 27, I was married to someone, his name was John, and he was diagnosed with HIV. And this was in the 90s when HIV was very much a death sentence. But the death sentence came at the end of a pretty ugly period of dying, a a period of dying that brought a lot of suffering to the person. And John was the same way. He suffered greatly. And sometimes I think about in my life, it's contextualized because of my age, because I was like 26 and he was 33 when he died. But I do think moving forward, some of the challenges that we face would be the same if we were 50 or 80. So sometimes I talk about age and it matters and it doesn't matter. So I do, I do want to just name that. But he was very, very ill, as you might imagine, someone with HIV in the 90s, including AIDS-related dementia. And, you know, I was forced to work. Like, you know, we were very young. I had a two-year-old at the time. And so I had to stay employed to keep insurance, to keep his health care. And for those of your listeners who are caregivers, right? And you, you understand this. I'm not sharing anything. Like you understand the bucket I'm looking into when I talk about this. And so I was working and we had to have hospice involved. I had to have support. And he died at the end of this very, again, so much suffering And the challenge is, is that when he was first diagnosed, like we sort of understood the path that would come before us. And he asked me to end his life. And I I couldn't do that. I mean, that's murder. And and that's, and and again, this is something that for the caregivers who are listening, they understand this, this very, you can get put in positions that you never imagined that you would be in, or that there are no answers to, there are no good answers to. What's that like for you? Because I talk, you know, with families all the time who maybe a couple is working through a new diagnosis. One of them has a new diagnosis and that conversation comes up almost hundred percent of the time is what is the end going to look like? And how do I, what control do I have over that? And, and that position of being put in as a spouse or a family member. And so I'm curious for you at 26 years old, hearing your spouse tell you that they just want to die or they want you to help them die. What was that like? Oh, it was so incredibly difficult. What words are about difficult, right? Like it was a a morass of ugliness. I don't even know what else to say. I think that I was in shock. We had this new diagnosis. It was completely unexpected. It came on Thanksgiving day. And again, I'm like 26 years old, came on Thanksgiving day. And it was immediately like we knew the end. We could see the end already, but he was healthy. So this is the same experience. Like you have someone who seems well, but they're not, right? They have something going on that is kind of invisible. It's very invasive. It will kill them. And what happens is you just 
jump to all the horrible things and you consider all of them and, and a hasten death or whether or not you're going to end your life, like all of those questions come up. And I think about it, I don't even really know how to put this into words, but to say like, it seems reasonable to me when you have such a horrible, like you've learned this diagnosis that you go through all the scenarios. That seems very normal to me. And yet with something like dementia or diagnosis of dementia or diagnosis with HIV, the different scenarios can be very horrible, right? And so that's, you asked me what I felt. I intellectualized my answer, but um, it was hard. I mean, that's, that's what I could say. And it was just kind of like, unimaginable. Like I, like when you think of your life at 25, you don't think about this question. And I think when you're 52 or 80, like all of the scenarios that you consider, it's just so incredibly difficult. Yeah. Yeah. When I talk to people too, we, we talk so much about wanting the suffering to end. You don't want to lose your loved one, obviously. And yet you want the suffering to end. And so how do you get to the place of how you feel about that? But yeah, well, uh, I, you know, I kind of think about, I think about medicine a lot, you know, I'm kind of a health policy nerd. I teach health policy. I'm an academic. And and when I think about dying or even dementia or terminal illness, I think that in society in the United States, we view it. If you have a dementia we view it as a medical problem with a social aspect. And I wonder if we view it as a social problem with a medical aspect, we might think about the suffering differently. Ooh, to say more about that. When we imagine the healthcare system that we have in the United States, it's so treatment focused, Yeah, right? And we don't have healthcare as a human right. We have healthcare as a commodity that is bought and sold. That concept's really, we have to dig into that because we have the healthcare system that we have, that it's really about treatment, a treatment focus. When we train doctors in medical school, we train them to treat, right? There are no standards for medical schools for end-of-life care. A physician can go all the way through medical school and have no training on how to do end-of-life care. Incredible. It's incredible because we have this treatment focused society. And so what I imagine when I'm working with people, and again, from the social work lens, I do see the importance of medicine and with someone who has a terminal illness, but also there's the spiritual aspect. There's the family aspect. There's the caregiving aspect. There's the grieving aspect. There's the community aspect. Like people who are dying are kind of hidden. We don't really see it as a community issue. And so I like in my social work head, I'm like, what if this is a social issue with a medical component rather than a medical issue with a small social component? And I think we would approach people who are dying or approach people with dementias very differently if we had that lens, but we don't. We have this treatment focused lens. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I love the shift of perspective in that way. And it would be so interesting, right, to see how things would look different or could look different if we shift that, shifted it in that way. Wow. Well, and if you think about people's perceptions who are not in this experience, right, people who are not caregivers, they think like the doctor is there all the time or the doctor's there when you're dying. And, and we who are caregivers, who have been caregivers, we know that that's not the case, right? 
Like the doctors come in, they prescribe, they adjust medications, but really it's us as caregivers, it's nurses, it's social workers, it's volunteers, yeah. you know, it's nursing home staff, whatever it is. And so we have this like lens, like, oh, this is about medicine. And this is not about medicine. This is about caring. I li- it's almost a reclaiming of that experience, that space, that very much. Uh-huh. So. so let's talk a little bit about, let's jump into the death with dignity piece, just so that folks can have a better understanding about what it is, <laughs> what's, what's going on policy-wise in the country, in different states. And then I'd love to get some a little bit of education about how that applies to folks with memory impairment or dementia as well. Yeah. So 10 states in the United States have a piece of legislation, and it, it's broadly called death with dignity, or sometimes the medical procedure is called medical aid in dying. And what this is, what death with dignity is, is a piece of legislation that tells a physician and a patient all the steps they have to follow to request a hasten death or to request medication to end their life. And almost all the statutes, the, the 10 different statutes in the United States are, are nearly identical. And so I can talk about Oregon, which is the first state that happened in 94, or I could talk about New Mexico, which is the most recent state that is just getting ready to have its first year sort of anniversary of having death with dignity available. And I, you know, I, the, the laws are almost interchangeable with a few sort of minor tweaks, depending on the jurisdiction. And essentially at its core, what the death with dignity bill allows is a person who is terminally ill to say to a physician, you know, I would like a medication to end my life. And the death with dignity law tells that physician how a person would qualify all of the steps to qualify. We think of it as a standard of care. This is what, what physicians have to do. A medical model, yes. <laughs> it's, it's a medical model. And when, um, because medicine, the AMA is opposed to death with dignity, but state medical societies have actually moved to neutral on the issue. A majority of physicians support death with dignity. And so typically we would think of the medical model being established in medicine, but because medicine is sort of split on the issue, that's why we have legislation about it. Like legislators say, this is what you're going to do. If medicine's not going to regulate itself, the state will regulate it. So 10 states have, have regulated this. And essentially you have to be, to qualify, so go into the specifics here, you have to be terminally ill with a prognosis of six months or less to live. You have to be mentally competent to make and communicate healthcare decisions, you have to be an adult. So those are the three basic kind of qualification standards. And two physicians have to examine you to determine that you, you meet all of those things. So again, terminally ill, six months or less to live, which is the hospice also prognosis qualification standard. And then the the mentally competent to make and communicate healthcare decisions and an adult. So that mentally competent piece, is that during the time of the visits with the doctor, clearly, but also at the end? So it is for the visits to the doctor. So again, if you think about how medicine works, when a physician writes a prescription, they don't continue to necessarily follow the patient as the patient takes the prescription. They do, but you know, we have this perception that a physician is always there and it's, and we as caregivers know that that's not 
that's right. not what happens. Yeah. But most people who ingest death with dignity med- medication to hasten their death do so with the help of a statewide nonprofit or a physician or a healthcare provider there. So for the most part that those providers ask the question, like, do you know what will happen if you ingest this medication? And, and if the answer is no, or, you know, they, someone says, oh, I'll wake up and feel better. Then that medication is not given to the patient, but this is, but that is not part of the law that that's the practice of how it works, but it's not codified into law. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I'm curious if you can share any stories about what it is like going from, you know, beginning to end, uh, as far as somebody making a decision to meet with physicians to follow through with at least having the option, because I'm, I'm guessing that some people may meet with the doctors, get what they need to end their life and then decide not to as well. And, and I'm, I'm kind of throwing multiple questions in here. So you just share whatever comes up. Okay. But I also thought, what can you talk to us also about what is what does that look like? Is it a pill? Yep. Is it liquid? Is it multiple pills? What and are states different and and what they choose to use? Yeah, I can. So in, in terms of people qualifying or stories, one of the things that's that I find so interesting is that because this is becomes a political debate, right? Like and becomes part of politics. People think that this is so incredibly controversial and people don't know and whether or not they use death with dignity. But really, in my experience with patients, folks who get to this point are resolute, right? They tend to be calm. There isn't a question like, oh, oh should I do this or not? Like they understand the course of their their illness. They understand the course of their treatment. They know that they are dying. This is not a group of people who might recover from pancreatic cancer and be that one person who recovers. That's not these people. 95% of people who ingest death with dignity are enrolled in hospice. Overwhelmingly, they have health insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, private insurance. They're insured. They have good care. And so there's this perception politically that this is controversial, but in my experience, the people who visit a physician to qualify for medical aid and dying really are resolute and they know, they know that it's time. They know they're not going to survive their diagnosis. And so there's a a sense of calm. So that's a thing that happens is that they very much kind of have their ducks in a row. There's a process you have to follow it's very much like being a caregiver. Like you have to get everything right and all the forms, right? Like there's those steps that a patient has to go through. And as you know, that's really hard when you're dying or when you're very ill, but it's only the patient. So it can't be the caregiver. So the patient has to ask the physician, then the patient has to put it in writing. And then there's a waiting period. And then the patient has to ask the physician again, those are some of the steps that how the, long is that waiting period? Um, it's, curiosity. you know, it's different in every state, but it's about two weeks. It's about 14 days. Some states have two waiting periods where there's a 14 and then a two day waiting period for the prescription to be written after a person is qualified. Other states, Vermont just took away that second 48 hour waiting period. Um, just this week, the governor signed the bill or last week, I guess. But you asked about a patient's story. One of the things that is is really fascinating 
is that if a patient is choosing a hasten death, they're, so they're choosing the timing and manner of their death, they very frequently bring their loved ones around, right? And so there's this, this moment where family gets to come together and it looks all different ways. Like if it's a raucous family that throws a big sort of alcohol party, like there's that, <laughs> or if it's a quiet family that's praying, it's that too, but, but that's a, a hallmark of, of death with dignity is that um, so many loved ones get to come around together, whether it's the moment that the person is, is ingesting the medication or the day before. And it's so, again, as a social worker, I, I, it is so enriching the family. I mean, they're sad. They don't want their loved one to die. Right. But they do want the suffering to end and they do want to honor their loved one's wishes and they want to be there. And again, I'll use the word sort of in celebration and it's not like we typically think about celebration. It's more like that, the love, the reverence, the being together. Yeah. And it just looks like, you know, when you, if you think about what it looks like, it looks like what that family looks like Right. You know, however, however is, they celebrate things. <laughs> unique as, as each individual each can be. Individual, yeah. And I, it is such an honor and privilege to be a part of that. I mean, I just have to say to be invited into that is, is so, um, I, again, it's just an honor, I would say. Absolutely. So can you tell us a little, oh, t- yeah, tell us about the medication piece. What, what does that look like? Yes. And I also want to talk about the people who choose not to, to ingest the medication. So the medication right now, it has changed over time. And each state that has a death with dignity law publishes annually a report to the people of the state that's available. If you, if you live in a death with dignity state, if you live in Oregon or Washington, Vermont, New Jersey, California, Colorado, you know, if, if you live in one of these states, you can actually go to your public health website or your state department of health website and read the statistics. And they each report on which drugs people use. They they report a whole bunch of, of information, but the medications that are prescribed um, are available or or people can see what they use. And it tends to be a cocktail that a, that a person drinks. Right. And so that that's the easiest point. Essentially it's an overdose, right? I mean, if you think in, in what is it like, you know, like straight up, what is it? It's an overdose. And so you can't take a whole bunch of pills at once. So, you know, it, it tends to be a liquid. It's a combination of a whole bunch of, I think three or four or five, depending on the, the formula that is used medications. In some places, the pharmacist actually comes to your house pharmacists are really important parts of our healthcare system. And there are some pharmacists who take this very seriously. They want the patient, the patient and the family to understand how the medication works. And, and, and so I, I have seen that, but it's a liquid medication that, that a patient drinks. It's very bitter. It tastes very bad. In our movement, people talk about that, that, that might sort of be strange to your listeners if they haven't had this conversation before, but I do want to talk about the patients who choose not to use the who qualify, but actually don't go on to use the medication. So about one in three people who qualify to either get a prescription or fill that prescription end up dying from their underlying condition. They don't hasten their death. And if you think about, I mean, and again, we as caregivers know this, one of the things that happens when we have a really devastating health diagnosis is that things get taken away from us, right? We can't drive anymore. 
can't work. We don't leave our house and then we don't leave the living room and then we don't leave the bed. So our choices or our options in life get peeled away. And what death with dignity is, is it's one more choice to actually add, right? Like if if you're thinking about what are my end of life choices, death with dignity is one. And so for some folks who go through that process and say, oh my gosh, I want this choice. They're able to tolerate their symptoms every day. And so they, they opt not to, um, because they know it's there. They know it's there. Oh, it's an option. Their mind. Yeah. Yeah. And really it's a large number. I mean, I feel like a third of folks go to do that. And I I feel like that's a big number, Mm -hmm. like a third don't hasten their death. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that statistic that I think that's important. And again, these are folks that have gone through with the appointment that have gone through with getting the prescription and then waiting or deciding. Well, and they've gone through the waiting periods. They've had two physicians Mm -hmm. evaluate them. They've done a written request and they've had witnesses sign it, like all of those things. Can we talk a little about dementia? Because this is one area out of the three criteria, the criteria you need to meet is that you have to be mentally competent in order to access this. And so clearly in all these 10 states, somebody that has, I guess I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far and you can, you can correct me is it's not that they have a dementia diagnosis. It's that they're not competent to make decisions, right? Right. Yeah. So that, that's always the challenge. And so typically a person with dementia, memory-related issues would not qualify for death with dignity because they don't hit that both of the issues at the same time. They don't have a terminal illness with a prognosis of six months, but also are mentally competent to make and communicate healthcare decisions. So it's not that the law says you can't qualify if you have dementia. It's that the standards or the steps for qualifying, you don't meet those or you you can't become a qualified patient. And that is so incredibly difficult for someone with dementia. I mean, I would say it's the number one question I get when I'm speaking. Yeah, I bet. Oh, I bet. Because it's just, it's up for um, so many people are experiencing that. Do you foresee change in the future? in that area, in that arena? What is, what is the talk going on in that community about dementia? I don't see a change in terms of allowing people with dementia to qualify. And one of the reasons is that that would move the United States to a place where euthanasia is allowed because someone else would have to make the decision for you. And I, I don't think that that is going to happen in the United States at all. We do see it's legal in Switzerland, in Belgium, in Canada, somewhat, but for the most part, it it is not lawful any place in the world, except for those kind of three jurisdictions. And a couple of other countries have passed recently, and I think that we'll see, or it will play out whether or not the the qualification standards are how they are. But right now, there's only three people places in the world where it's allowed. So I don't think in the United States that it's coming anytime soon. What were those places? Um, Switzerland, right? Mm -hmm. And then Belgium and Canada. Okay. So Canada had a Supreme Court decision several years ago where the Canadian Supreme Court said that if you are suffering, right? And if you have a long-term illness or suffering illness or terminal illness, 
um, you had a right to access uh, hasten death or death with dignity. And then each of the provinces passed laws to talk about how to put that into place. And so the differentiation here is in the United States, each state has said you have to have a terminal illness. And in Canada, that's not necessarily the case. They based it, it's more on the level of suffering. The level of suffering. And also allowing someone else to make the decision for you if you're not able well, you have to have sometimes said, like, this is what I want. Ah. Right? This is what I so, want. The, so getting something in writing, like in your advanced directive, or you, I guess I'm not sure yeah. what that would look like there. <laughs> yeah, I am no expert on the Canadian law um, I'm <laughs> at all. Come on, Peg. <laughs> I know. I know people, but I, I'm, no, I'm no expert on the Canadian law. I think, you know, really in the United States, the, the place that we see more people, and this is not a great number of people, but Amy Bloom just wrote about this in her book, In Love, where going to Switzerland to access their services, where they're the only jurisdiction in the world that allows someone who's not a Swiss citizen to use the law. And so a few folks with dementia have managed to qualify. It's very, very difficult to qualify. It costs a lot of money. You know, it's, it's, it's a tough path if that's a path that someone chooses. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up because I had been hearing a little bit about Switzerland and someone's experience. Yeah. If anybody is curious, I mean, I would really encourage them to read that book because I think that she does such a nice job of, of describing, and she really tries to describe her husband's experience. So what is the patient feeling? What is the person feeling? she does a really nice job of telling his story and tries to get away, you know, out of his way to tell his story, even though she's the author. So I think I, I really appreciate that book. Nice. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes for sure. Yeah. It's called, it's by Amy Bloom in love. Yes. That, I don't. Yep. That's what it is. Fantastic. So knowing here in the U S we, do not have access to death with dignity for ourselves or individuals that are not able to, are not mentally competent to make decisions. What would a dignified death look like for those who have dementia? What, what can family members be thinking about? It is so incredibly difficult. I mean, I, there are not good policy answers in a, in a, you know, that's frustrating for me as a social worker when I'm faced with a family or a person with a new diagnosis of dementia, um, it's scary, it's hard, and there's not good answers. And, you know, I think that I, I lean back into my social work training to make sure that families and, and people communicate their end of life care wishes, you know, write it down formally in an advanced directive for a living will or whatever format or a pulse or a most, um, those are when your advanced directive or your end of life care wishes become part of your medical record. That's what a post is, or sometimes it's called a most. So making sure that your end of life care wishes are known. Mm-hmm. And then also I think about like, I have a daughter, I think about, she would probably have to make um, decisions for me if I ended up with a dementia or an end of life something that I couldn't make my own decisions. So making sure that she knows what I want, right? So she feels empowered. And so I think about things like what would be good markers for her? Like I love my coffee in the morning and 
to read the paper and to do the crossword puzzle. Now, I know that that's not going to be like like my entire life. The, the fact that I might be able to do that or might not, I don't. It's probably not a reality that you know if I live very long that at the end I'll be able to do that. But enjoying coffee, right? Mm-hmm. Or enjoying something as much as I enjoy coffee. If that's gone for me. I sort of think like those are markers that she can begin to think about, you know, I, I don't want further care. God, yeah. So being clear, I love, so I, I wrote a couple of these down, the importance of having your wishes stated in an advanced directive or a pulsed or more. I haven't heard most. What is most medical for? orders, medical orders. For I think like maybe treatment. Maryland and a couple of states use most it. instead of pulse. It's the same thing, but it just has a different so name. So pulse for our listeners is physician's orders for life-sustaining treatment and most is medical orders for life-sustaining treatment. And that form is pretty much a checkbox medical form for folks to mark if they want interventions, if they want to be resuscitated or not. Right. But I also think, so that's the formal form, Mm -hmm. I think is important. But I also think these informal conversations to get, again, this concept of markers, like if I can't really enjoy my coffee and say I switched to orange juice and I'm loving my orange juice, that's fine. Like I don't, you know, but like (laughs) that a moment of enjoyment, if I don't have that anymore. So how to support your decision makers in following your, your wishes, because that's an incredibly difficult place for a family member to be in right, or a friend to be in, whoever, whoever you have chosen. And the thing that I would say too, is that many people don't understand. I'll just point it out is that that pulse form and most form that we're talking about is a form that medical professionals will follow if they're not able to reach your decision maker. So that decision maker, whoever you choose can choose to change that, to um, change the pulse form or uh, so choosing that person wisely, I think is also very important who yeah. the person that's going to speak on your behalf or, or make those final decisions yeah. for you. Yeah. We call that person an agent and choosing the right healthcare. You know, I think that we think like, oh, our kids are at, like, I, I gave the example of my daughter, but for some people, that's not the right decision maker for them. And that it's okay. Like you have to be okay with that because it's your life and you get to decide who is your decision maker for you? And it might be more of a neutral friend. Right. Like that might be a better decision maker. Then that would be fine. You get to make that decision. Another thing that I think is really helpful is if you record a video mm-hmm. or if you put it in writing, because, you know, it's like my daughter and I, I'm 55 now, my daughter is 30. You know, we have conversations now, say I'm 70. She might not remember. If I go record a video, yeah, she has something And then I think that those pieces kind of form a body. So it's the poles, the most, right, which is the formal piece. And then also if there's this informal conversations about markers or things I would like or videos recorded, it just gives a more robust support for a caregiver who's making decisions. Yeah. Yeah. This is fantastic. Peg, I want to thank you so much. I, this these are difficult, like I said, conversations for folks to have thoughts to be thinking about. And certainly, again, we get so many questions. I, I can't tell you how many times I hear people say, oh, if I got Alzheimer's disease, I would just, I would just do the death with dignity. I would just end it. I would just, it's really easy to say those things when you're not in that position. And this is just a good opportunity for folks to 
think about what really are the options and what really does it look like and who does it apply to? Yeah. If, if folks want more information, our website, um, which is deathwithdignity.org, has a lot of good information and that's a good place to get more information if, if folks are curious. Fantastic. Thank you. I, I will definitely add that to the show notes. I'll put Amy Bloom's book in there. Is there anything else you can think of that would be helpful for our listeners to access? One of the things I'm wondering is if you have a good resource for having that conversation or making your wishes known or creating a video or, you know, I haven't scanned around the internet right now. So I apologize. I I don't like have those kind of like, I feel like that's in my social work toolkit. I got you. Yeah. Yeah. So, but this is good. I mean, just calling it out. So people do some research, (laughs) look it up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I might, I'll poke around too and see if I can add something as well. But specifically for dementia, I think that that's where obviously our listeners are most interested in, but, but I think the general public, I mean, this is, I I don't have my statistics in front of me either, but when we look at causes of death, dementia is up there in what the top five and of um, terminal illnesses. And so, you know, this is no small thing and people are asking these, these questions for a reason. So, yeah. Yeah. Again, I can really sort of the struggles of being a caregiver resonate with me, you know, personally I've been there and, and as a social worker. And so I very much understand that like, this is a tough problem to solve. It's very hard. Yeah. Peg, thank you so much for joining us. And I just appreciate your time so much and we will keep in touch. I'm as, as things change and policies change, I just want to thank you for the work that you're doing because we need it <laughs> clearly. Well, and thank you, Laura. And thank you for your podcast supporting caregivers so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have comments or would like to send us a message, you can send it to hello at lifeonrepeatpodcast.com. Please also consider following us at Life on Repeat Podcast, either on Instagram or Facebook. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute, nor is it meant to convey professional, legal, psychological, financial, or medical advice. If you can use such services, please seek them out from someone you trust.